Welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and each week I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. New Zealand might seem like a far-flung group of islands separated from the world by ocean, but we have a rich history of UFO witnesses dating back to the airship sightings of 1909. Significant, widely publicized sightings occurred throughout the 1950s and 1960s, including some that became household names such as the 1959 Moreland sighting and the 1969 Natia UFO landing site. Public interest was high, and it is clear from witness testimonies that the Air Force carried out investigations. A decade later, the Gisborne UFO flap, involving hundreds of reported UFO sightings, dominated the late 1970s, but these were massively eclipsed by the controversial Kaikoura light sightings of 1979. It was New Year's Day, 1979, when the world awoke to the news of the strange lights that had been spotted by six people on a plane off of New Zealand's South Island. Was it a UFO? Of course not, cried the skeptics. It was Venus. It was squid boats. It was radar returns from a field of cabbages. But more than 40 years later, the two pilots and four passengers are adamant it was none of the above and are frustrated at being unable to find answers. The case brought instant fame, but no fortune. For some, before bringing shame and anger, when they were accused of hoaxing the sightings, and it even broke up a marriage. Well, good evening, everyone. I hope you are doing well wherever you are in the world. I hope that you enjoyed your Halloween festivities. For those of you that celebrate it, I hope that, as I say, you know, the weather's been good where you are. Those of you in the Northern Hemisphere have got to enjoy some of the joys of fall, you know, cooler temperatures, been able to cook some of your favorite foods. Bake some things in the oven and enjoy it. Take your kids out and uh, enjoy the nice fall weather. For those of you in the Southern Hemisphere, you know, it's obviously starting to warm up a bit everywhere. It's been quite warm the last few days, last week or so here, so it's been been quite good. Now, before I get too far into tonight's show, folks, I've got a correction that I wanted to get to before I forgot. So last month, when I was doing some news stories from San Antonio for the News of the Damned, I mispronounced a town name there, and I called it Seguin, but it's uh, Seguin. So as always, I do appreciate somebody calling me out on it. You know, I thought about not saying anything, but, you know, I know no one's getting too upset about it. But the bottom line is I do my best to try and get these things right. You know, Spanish is obviously not my native tongue, and it's something that I got to be pretty fluent in when I lived in California. But that's been a very long time ago. In fact, there are there are children that have gone from, you know, being born to old enough to vote. Uh, well, let's see, old enough to vote. Well, at least old enough to drive in the time that I've been out of uh, Southern California. So anyway, I do apologize for missing that, and thank you so much for catching it and bringing it to my attention. 
And as always, I'm so thankful for anyone who takes the time to listen to me. And my listeners all over the world, thank you from the bottom of my heart. As I say, you know, I've now had downloads or listens in 20 countries. So thank you to everyone, everyone in Europe that's listened, all my listeners in France and the UK, to all my listeners in South America. I've had some listeners from Brazil and Argentina and Chile, and I really appreciate it. Obviously, everyone in the US, all over the country, thank you so much. And of course, to my listeners in New Zealand and Australia, thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking the time to listen to what I've got to say. Now, of course, I've got the traditional shout outs. So thank you so much to Eddie and his family in California. Thanks for taking the time to give me those kind words of encouragement. Thank you for listening to the program. To my fans in Oakland, I know I've got some listeners in Oakland, so thank you very much for listening. To my Montana family, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Hopefully it's not too cold up there right now. To Chris and his family in Illinois, Chris and Max, thank you so much. To Adriana and Nico in Texas, thank you from the bottom of my heart. To Scott, Dave, and Matt at the Old 77 in Missouri, thank you so much for supporting everything I do. It means the world to me, and I'd love to be back on the program at some point soon. To the Quite Unusual podcast, to Noel and Nicole, thank you so much for all your support, and keep pumping out those great episodes. For those of you that don't know, folks, one of the hosts over there literally lost her job over being a podcaster. So her company basically said that they didn't want her doing the podcast, even though it was in her own spare time. I mean, it was no conflict of interest. She wasn't saying anything negative about the business. She also wasn't doing things on company time. However, they basically gave her an ultimatum and said, either you stop doing your podcast or you don't have a job here. And she chose the podcast. So, you know, <laughs> we've all heard of artists that suffer for their work, but, you know, I really respect the heck out of that. So as I say, you know, just keep keep doing what you do, keep at it, and hopefully something breaks for you very soon. To Harry and Lisa in North Carolina, thank you from the bottom of my heart for everything you do for me, everything you do to support the show. To Brooke and her family in Virginia, hang in there, Brooke. I know it's been a tough year. And again, as I say, anyone listening to my voice, thank you so much for listening. Oh, and one last one, to the Fidianga tribe, thank you so much for supporting what I do. So with all that having been said, folks, and having given you the nice pleasantries and everything else. Tonight, I've got three articles for the News of the Damned. I'm trying to give you a bit of a New Zealand slant. We do have a much smaller media presence here. So even though we've got a smaller population, we've also got fewer news outlets. So I couldn't find you three new ones, but I found you one, and I've got the continuation of last week's story about the U-196 that was scuttled off of Northland. So I'll get into those. I'll give you the news of the dam very shortly. And yeah, I've got another case that I've followed up many times on the program, and I've got an article about that as well. And it's one of those where the plot just keeps getting thicker and thicker and thicker. So for those of you who may be new listeners to the program, I do a news segment every week called The News of the Damned, where I try to bring you three or four articles. Now, the whole story behind the News of the Damned is that Charles Fort was one of the founding fathers of what we now call the paranormal and the unexplained. He did a lot of research into things like UFOs and sea serpents, missing people, all those sorts of things. And he's one of the first people who took the time to collect and categorize the 
magazine articles, and newspaper clippings from around the world, and then publish them in books so that we could read them and kind of see what was going on with these strange phenomenon. I guess the term high strangeness would have all started with really with Charles Fort. And the term Fortian or Fortiana comes from Charles Fort's name. Now, Charles Fort referred to anything that was kind of ignored or excluded by mainstream science as damned data. Therefore, I always, you know, salute him and pay an homage to him by calling this segment the news of the damned. So with that, I'll now get into the news of the damned. So the first story here is a New Zealand-centric one. And this is an ongoing story that I've covered for you a few times now. And I was telling you that this is one of the mysteries that goes on here in New Zealand, one of the unexplained things. And this is from the Star News, which is from Canterbury in the South Island. And this one is titled, Is the Mysterious Big Cat on the Move? So you've heard me talk about the Canterbury Panther or the South Island Panther. Well, here's another update on it. And this one was written by Matt Slaughter, and it came out on the 22nd of October. And there's a photo here too, folks. A mysterious big black cat reportedly spotted at the Hallswell Quarry last month may now be on the prowl in Heathcote Valley. Letter writers to the Star say they have seen a big cat in several Canterbury locations, including the Hallswell Quarry. A Christchurch man even called Talkback Radio, claiming he had also seen the cat at the quarry. Hallswell Hornsby Rickerton Community Board Member Mike Mora heard the call and discussed the sighting at a board meeting. Now Tom Lewis, his uncle Andrew Lewis, and Tom's son Theo are the latest to claim they saw the creature. Tom said it was spotted among the trees and long grass at the back of their house on Horatane Valley Road. Said Tom, my son Theo first saw it on October the 15th. He said, Dad, look at that huge black cat in the back paddock. I thought, oh yeah, five minutes later, Theo said, Dad, that, that cat's massive. Then I took a look from 85 meters away, and it was huge. First I saw it sitting up, looking maybe 800 millimeters tall. Then it moved to behind the tree where it sat down, Tom said. He took photos of the animal through binoculars. He told Andrew and his other family members at the home to take a look. All of us were blown away by the size, he said. At dusk, Tom took his deer-tracking dog, Moose, out to find the big cat. There were, they were successful, and he says they got within 10 meters of the cat before it ran off. It was larger than Moose, who is a Hungarian Vizsla, said Tom. There have been re-emergence of reported sightings of, of big black cats in recent months. Over the years, the mysterious animal has also been spotted in Otago, Southland, and Marlborough. Now, I don't expect everyone to be a New Zealand expert. Those are other provinces in South Island. So th this cat or similar cats have been spotted around the South Island. And there's a photo of it here. And for those of you that don't know, 800 millimeters, that's kind of around two and a half, two and a quarter feet tall, something like that, sitting down. So no, this is not an oversized house cat. If it is, it's spread with something else. And there's a couple photos here. And it said, this big black cat-like creature was snapped just meters from a property on Horatane Valley Road, Heathcote Valley. And photo attributed to Tom Lewis. So the plot thickens. And one of our most spotted cryptids in New Zealand is on the move around again. So look, I'll make sure to bring anything else to your attention. I've got a semi-correspondent here in the South Island who has a bit of a tongue-in-cheek impression of the... Uh, 
of the big cats. So they always send me links in the local paper whenever it, it, it occurs. But look, from what I've seen, and especially from this photo, it's definitely, to me, I would say it's definitely a real flesh and flesh and blood animal. And I would say it is a large cat of some sort. So now on to the second story of this evening's episode. Now this one I forgot to include in last week's episode, so that's why I'm covering it now. And this is also about a big cat, but a different kind. Now this one's from coasttocoastam.com. And this one is titled, Video, Massive Ancient Cat Drawing Found Among Nazca Lines in Peru. Now, this is byline by Tim Banal, and long-term listeners to the show will know that Tim Banal is the web guru over at coasttocoastam.com, so basically any article coming out of there will have Tim Banal as the byline. Workers refurbishing a platform overlooking the iconic Nazca lines in Peru could not believe their eyes when they stumbled upon a massive drawing of a cat that had been etched into a hillside thousands of years ago. According to a press release from the Peruvian Ministry of Culture, Announcing the remarkable discovery, the figure was scarcely visible and was about to disappear because it's situated on quite a steep slope that's prone to the effects of natural erosion. Fortunately, upon finding the feline, experts set about clearing and restoring the drawing, which measures 120 feet long and is believed to have been created about 200 to 100 BC. With this discovery once again, the rich and varied cultural legacy that the area harbors is revealed marveled the Peruvian Minister of Culture. The proverbial Nazca cat is the latest in what has been a staggering series of finds made in the region over the last few years, including a whopping 50 previously unseen drawings documented in 2018 by way of a drone survey. So folks, um, you know, it's it just goes to show. Even some of these things, like I say, that have been known, people have been talking about them since the 50s or 60s or before that, when I was growing up, like I said, that was one of the big mysteries. I read a lot about the Nazca lines and these drawings and geoglyphs in the desert in South America, and here they're finding more of them. So it is quite fascinating. Now, on a totally unrelated note, well, semi-unrelated, it's got nothing to do with the cat, but uh, as I was flicking through the channels tonight on TV, the James Bond movie Quantum of Solace, Solace or something along those lines, Quantum Solace or Quantum of Solace. Uh, that was on, and I immediately noticed the background, uh, the part of the show I was watching, and it was in this hotel. Well, this hotel is in the Nazca Desert, so if you're ever curious as to what it looks like and you don't want to look up the Nazca Desert, if you've ever seen that movie and there's the scene where they're in the desert, especially at the end when the building blows up and he chases that operative down and gives him the motor oil, well, that's the Nazca Desert, so... It's quite a fascinating place, and there's lots of things that have been discovered there besides the lines. So now I've got one more for you, which is another follow-up story, and then we will get into part two of the U196 story. Now, this one's also from coasttocoastam.com, and this story is the gift that keeps on giving. This one is titled, Fen Treasure Hunter Charged with Digging in Yellowstone National Park, October 23rd, 2020 by Tim Banal. While the search for the Fen treasure may have come to an end months ago, the saga continues to provide strange and unusual developments as a Utah man has been indicted by the federal government for what they say was an ill-advised and felonious hunt for the riches in a cemetery at Yellowstone National Park. In a press release on Thursday, 
the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Wyoming announced that they have charged Roderick Dow Craythorn with excavating or trafficking in archaeological resources and injury or depredation to United States property. Specifically, the Department of Justice alleges that the treasure hunter had been digging in the Fort Yellowstone Army Cemetery, located within the National Park of the same name. Over the course of an eight-month period from October 1, 2019 to May 24, 2020, in the hopes of finding the riches famously hidden by eccentric art dealer Forrest Fenn, who passed away back in September. Craythorn has pleaded not guilty to the charges and will go on trial in December. While the timing of when the DOJ says Craythorn stopped looking for the treasure as well as the location in Wyoming where he had been digging might seem to suggest that he could be the mysterious individual who found the riches, a few details which have emerged since the hunt ended appear to indicate that this is not the case. In an essay allegedly penned by the finder last month, they described themselves as a millennial, while Craythorn is 52 years old, putting him well outside that generational designation. Additionally, Fenn himself described the person as coming from back east when he announced the end of the hunt in June and of the hunt in June and Utah, where Craythorn resides, is west of where the art dealer called home in Albuquerque. As such, it stands to reason that the indicted treasure hunter is simply the latest and perhaps the last individual to see their dream of discovering the hidden riches turn into a nightmare of their own creation. Well, look, folks, again, a very quick rundown for those of you who may not have heard this story. Forrest Fenn was an art dealer uh, from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And many years ago, uh, off the top of my head, I, I can't remember again as often as I've read these to you, kind of 10 to 15 years ago, he was diagnosed with cancer. He thought it was terminal. He decided to go and hide $1.3 million US in treasure in somewhere in a five-state area of the Rocky Mountains. And the whole idea behind it was that he would get people out into nature looking for this treasure. Then he published clues in his memoirs and didn't die from cancer. Now, there's been a lot of controversy around the person who said that they discovered it. As I said, there are people saying, well, maybe this treasure never existed. Maybe Forrest Fenn went back and collected it. Maybe, you know, as I've postulated, it's possible that maybe authorities leaned on Forrest Fenn to say that the treasure was discovered when it wasn't. And the reason behind that in my mind was that five people had already died looking for this treasure and maybe he had been pressured to to tell people that it was discovered to stop you know pointless deaths and now again here we've got someone who was digging up a graveyard in yellowstone national park now i don't know what will happen for sure to this gentleman but i can tell you that doing things like this on on government land especially something like desecrating a great uh, graveyard will not be dealt with lightly. So, you know, that's a federal crime, obviously. That's a felony in the U.S. So he's not just going to get a slap on the hands with a wet bus ticket, I would say, because they'll definitely want to dissuade anyone from doing something like this again in future. So, yeah, folks, uh, again, this story is just kind of the gift that keeps on giving. Now, on to the final story of the News of the Damned for this program. And this is part two of the story that I was reading for you last week, which is one of New Zealand's mysteries that I only just recently found out about. And it's quite an interesting one for me because I'm a big World War II enthusiast uh, as far as the history, the whereabouts, what happened, when and where. A lot of it for me was that I had family that fought in the war. I'd also say that as a boy growing up, 
you know, it wasn't all that far from the end of the war. You know, we were only kind of 40 years away at that point. So there were a lot of TV programs and movies that I saw growing up that had to do with World War II. So don't get me wrong. I know that people die in war and it's not some glorious thing. But, you know, I've always been interested in history and World War II uh, because it was in living memory. It's something that I was always fascinated by and very interested in. And I had the very distinct pleasure of getting to interview several people, both military personnel and civilian personnel that went through World War II for a school project when I was young. Now, unfortunately, I don't still have those recordings, but a lot of the stories and a lot of those interviews are burnt into my memory. There might be bits I've forgotten, but there's bits that I very vaguely remember. So now here we go, and I'll get into part two of this story. And again, this comes from the elocal.co.nz. And I'm sorry, folks, I forgot to mention at the top of the News of the Damned, for those of you who may be new listening, as always, you'll find links to all of the articles that I read tonight in the show notes. So you can go there and click onto one of the links if you would like to know more about any of these stories. So U-Boat 196, the mystery continues. Gold bullion, uranium, loot, what really happened? Will we ever know? And again, this was written by the late Charles, or sorry, the late David Child Dennis. The Monsoon Gruppe, which is the Monsoon Group in English. Um, my German isn't that perfect, but a lot of things like this, it's pretty easy for me to work out what they're saying. Before continuing my attempt to reconstruct what I believe to be the fate of the crew of U-196 after they reached New Zealand, it might be useful to give readers an overview of the events surrounding U-196 at that time. Beginning in December 1942, the German Navy had been requested to make a series of U-boat sailings to Japan, carrying high-ranking Japanese diplomats and technical information. The Japanese capture of the Malay Peninsula and Indonesia archipelago gave them bases at Jakarta, then called Batavia, and Penang, which greatly increased the operational areas available to their submarines. The 33rd Submarine Flotilla, based at Flensburg, detached a small squadron to these bases, beginning in 1943. They were to combine raiding with resupply operations into the Indian Ocean region under the codename Operation Monsoon, or Monsoon. While there were eventually two waves of U-boats assigned to the operation, it was the second wave, beginning in 1944, in which U-196 was dispatched. To give some idea of the cargo these boats carried, we must return to the U-234, which had surrendered to the Americans on May 15, 1945. This boat was assigned to Group Monsoon and had been in trans transit to Kobe, Japan, when the war ended. It carried 75 tons of lead, 26 tons of mercury, 12 tons of steel, 7 tons of optical glass, 43 tons of aircraft parts and plans, 560 kilograms of uranium oxide, and a disassembled ME-262 jet fighter. How was it possible to house a disassembled ME-262 in the restricted space within any submarine? Presumably, the boat carried only core engine parts and instruments for the ME-262. It also carried two Japanese nuclear scientists who committed suicide rather than face capture by the Americans. On September the 23rd, 1944, another group of monsoon boat, U-859, also a type IXD-2, was sunk in the Malacca Straits by the Allied submarine HMS Trenchant. She was carrying 31 tons of mercury for the Japanese munitions industry and allegedly a quantity of uranium oxide. 
1972, a salvage team recovered 12 tons of mercury for the West German government. However, no mention was made of any uranium oxide recovery from the wreck. It is clear from the above that the Japanese were receiving advanced weapons technology from Germany and the group in Monsoon. U-boats were a key link in that program. If the Allies had not been able to penetrate the German Enigma codes using Ultra, these U-boats may well have succeeded in reaching Japan with their uranium oxide cargoes. U-196 sailed from Jakarta on November 11, 1944, and according to Martin Bryce, Axis blockade runners of World War II, 1981, was allegedly lost on November the 30th, 1944, while tra traversing an Allied minefield. That's 19 days after she sailed, well within the time required to reach North Korea and Japanese nuclear research facility. Fuel oil became a major difficulty for U-boats after the break. A 10,000-ton fleet oil oiler was sunk on March 15, 1944, by a Royal Navy destroyer near Mauritius, in the Indian Ocean. This meant unrefined fuel from Brunei became the only available fuel. Thus, U-196 was likely to have sailed north from Jakarta to refuel before proceeding on the next stage of the journey. Realizing the war was coming to an end and Allied success against the U-boats was dramatically increasing, Group in Monsoon was ordered back to Germany, carrying vital strategic supplies. Operation Monsoon effectively came to an end in late 1944. However, as U-234 and possibly U-859 were to demonstrate, the technical aid being supplied to Japan did not stop with Monsoon. But how would the Japanese deliver a nuclear bomb, and against what target? It's considered that it could have been by balloon against Iwo Jima or Okinawa. The Japanese had already launched a number of incendiary balloon attacks against the western U.S. in an attempt to destroy the northern California timber forest. The bomb-carrying balloon, lofted from Manchuria or western Honshu, which is one of the Japanese islands, would have lifted into the very high jet streams traveling east towards the intended target. Once the balloon was in the jet stream, it would have been beyond the altitude of Allied aircraft to intercept it. Even a relatively small atomic bomb could have severely damaged most of the U.S. fleet anchored off Okinawa. Such an entirely unexpected blow could have extended the war into 1946, resulting in an armistice, or worse, a stalemate giving the Japanese time to regroup. It's believed that the surrender of U-234 was a prearranged event, just as it's suspected that the U-196 arrival off Northland was similarly prearranged. With the arrival of U-234, the Allies suddenly realized they were in a deadly race against the Japanese to deploy the ultimate war-winning weapon. The key was to remove the scientific and technical support the Germans were supplying the Japanese. There is one key component to bomb making that proved to be a challenging problem, fusing. When the Enola Gay dropped the first bomb on Hiroshima, the fuse unit was manually inserted into the bomb case by a technical officer minutes before the bomb was dropped. It required great care and handling to ensure it worked correctly. German research was well advanced in fuse design and as such a critical part of the Japanese bomb project. The end of the war in Europe. Sometime on or about May 1, 1945, the German High Command had issued a general warning that hostilities were about to cease. By May 5, hostilities had all but ceased as preparations were completed for the formal surrender on board Lüneburg Heath on the 8th. Admiral Donitz, godfather of the U-boat arm and newly appointed head of state, authorized to sign the surrender document, was in an excellent position to direct any U-boat to undertake one last mission. U-196 would have been well informed of any developments. I believe the U-196 was ordered to collect German technical staff 
from the Japanese nuclear research facility in northern Korea and sail for southern waters before the official announcement of any surrender. Had the U-196 been in a Japanese port at the time of German surrender, Japan would have seized the boat as a prize of war, as were those boats that remained in Jakarta after May 8, 1945. The movement of scientists would not have raised suspicions within the, with the Japanese, given that technical specialities were regularly exchanged between Japan and Germany. Yet why was there a delay of three days before the Germans decided to agree to an unconditional surrender? There was no point when they had already warned their forces an end to hostilities was imminent around May 1st. The Nazi leadership would have been forewarned of this when the order when the Oder-Nesse line had been collapsed in late April, bringing the Russians to within 50 miles of Berlin. With the crossing of the Rhine in March 1945, the Allies activated Operation Paperclip, as I've talked about, the scientists going back to the U.S., to ensure they acquired German technology and experts, primarily in the aircraft and weapons development fields. Clearly, there was contact through neutral Switzerland, Spain, and Sweden between the Allies and German political leadership. And what better bargaining chip could the Germans have possessed than the most advanced weapon technology on the planet, safely hidden at sea on the U-196? Coming ashore, there's a pervasive myth that New Zealand remained largely defenseless during the Second World War. This myth has been officially encouraged to the point where most accepted as a fact. In fact, by late 1942, there were at least four radar posts between Army Bay on Whangaparoa Peninsula and the Outer Gulf Islands, with another two under construction. By 1944, there were so many, it was decided to decommission several as being surplus to requirements. This was at a time when the Japanese were only beginning to add radar to their larger warships. The area is around 90 Mile Beach and the associated airfields, so that's the area where the submarine purportedly was scuttled, were particularly well covered. There was a radar unit west of Kaitaia, coupled to specialist radio listening posts, which allegedly glued guided U-196 into an isolated beach north of Dargaville. It was here a small detachment of army trucks met the crew as they landed. Rumors persist that there was Nazi gold and looted treasure aboard U-196, and soon after landing, a dispute arose over the division of these spoils that led to a shooting. The story is pure disinformation designed to cover the real purpose of the landing. The sailing crew would have been separated from the scientific detail, and probably isolated to prevent them being identified. U-boat crew members would have raised unwanted questions, but the scientific detachment, not being military, could easily have vanished, especially given the large number of Allied troops present in Northland. The scientific party would have been removed to a secluded location, probably Taupo Bay in Northland, and passed off as convalescing soldiers, to whom there were many spread throughout beachside communities. Allied interrogators assisted by a small scientific staff would have assessed the value of the Germans and their accompanying scientific material before any offer of employment or relocation was made. Their documents would need weeks of translation and explanation. It must be appreciated that, remote as we may have appeared to be from the center of the world-shaping events then taking place, Japan was still at war with the Allies, and the Soviets had not made clear their intentions about Japan. Once the Allies came to realize the Japanese had a major nuclear facility in northern Korea, well within the grasp of the Soviets, secrecy was paramount. But of equal risk was the number of Marxist sympathizers only too eager to serve Moscow. They infested the ports and transport systems, willing accomplices and gathering intelligence for their Soviet masters. If the Allies were to keep the presence of these people secret, they needed to help 
needed the help of trusted locals. The question remains, who were they? It's been suggested the new arrivals were to be absorbed into the Northland community of Austrian refugees, a ploy that had worked in the past, albeit for the Obwehr. So the Obwehr was the German military intelligence service for the Reichswehr and for the Wehrmacht. So basically they were army intelligence. And that's what they're saying that at other times the Allies hid German Obwehr agents in with these Austrian refugees. Austria, occupied by the Allies in 1945, gave Allied intelligence services complete access to the necessary Austrian documents for establishing a legend covering undocumented foreign nationals, as required. There have also been persistent rumors that these new arrivals were absorbed into the Dalmatian community. So again, for those of you that don't know, here in New Zealand, we have got a group that they call the Dalis. Now they come from Dalmatia, which is part of Croatia in Europe. And so, you know, again, their looks and that would have been similar, although they wouldn't have spoken German. But this seems highly unlikely given the bitter anti-partisan anti war between Germany and Tito's Serbia. So that's what they're saying. You know, it would have been unlikely that they would have liked the Germ invited the Germans into their community. While it's possible some of the U-boat crews stayed on after the war, it would have been unlikely the nuclear scientists would have done so. They would have been offered positions at Cambridge in England or Los Alamos in the U.S., where there was already a sizable community of German scientists. And again, that's 100% true. Operation Paperclip. While the above story is based on informed speculation, eLocal has seen the magnetic anomaly readings that can confirm the presence of a large metallic object in the area that was cited as U-196. As is the way with highly secret military operations, the ordinary crew would have been told nothing of the mission. All they would have known was that they were transporting cargo and specialists from one side of the world to the other. And as hostilities ended, were, were more than happy to land in New Zealand, where they were at last safe. The three senior officers would have known some of the specific details of the mission, but would have been given the final course to sail to reach Northland and any required recognition codes at the last possible minute. Apart from that, there would they would have been told very little else. Had the U-196 crew been absorbed into the local population in 1945, there is now no reason to maintain secrecy after 66 years. The original crew will either be deceased or in their 80s, just too old to be the subject of any official interest. Their grandchildren will be New Zealand citizens and probably know little or nothing of what actually happened. Once the U-196 is finally relocated and entered, we might we might just find out more about what happened. So folks, it says here to be continued. I will do a little bit of research for you and see if there is more out there. So again, don't get me wrong, this is not 100% a fact. But there are many things here that you know are definitely true. Like I say, Operation Paperclip, and I've got no doubt that allied governments, the US government, Russia, uh, USSR at the time, Great Britain, France, all of those countries definitely bent the rules after the war about hiring and procuring, let's say, Nazi scientists for various means. So there's no secrecy to that. And at that time, it was the cutting edge weapon. So let's imagine right now, for example, somebody is developing a fusion reactor, right? And they're going to be the first country to get it. Well, if you know, there was a war and we knew that one of our enemies had technology that could help get us to build that nuclear or that fusion reactor. When I say us, I mean the U.S. So let's say the U.S. 
Okay, so sorry for that. So if the U.S. thought that someone in, you know, let's say when they invaded Iraq or Syria or one of these other countries would have information that would help them develop this weapon sooner or this fusion reactor, although it's not really a weapon, it could be used as one, they definitely would, you know, go out of their way to procure this quote unquote intelligent assets. So, you know, I've got no doubt that there's at least a grain of truth here. And I'll do a bit of a look to see if there's more to this. As I say, I would think if this U-boat had been discovered and confirmed 100%, I would have heard about it by now. But hey, other things slip under the radar. So I'll have a look into it and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Now, folks, that's the news of the dam for this evening. I hope you've enjoyed it. I realized that this story was a little bit longer, but I just wanted to give you a World War II mystery and something that's definitely got an effect in New Zealand. Now, I've had folks ask me, how can we support the program, JT, and how can we support you? So as I say, the first thing you can do is if you like this program, tell a friend, tell someone who you think would be into this as well. Just say, hey, you know, there's this crackpot down there in New Zealand. He tells these good stories, and I think you might like it. So suggest it to a friend. You can go and subscribe on things like Apple um, you know, Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to the show. You can like and review it. If you're feeling generous, you can go over to theparanormalsun.com and you can drop a few dollars in my PayPal link there. You can go and follow us on Instagram. There's a Paranormal Sun Instagram page. There's a Paranormal Sun Facebook page group there that you can go and like and join to support the program. You can also, if if you are in the state to do it and you want to support more, you can go and support me through Patreon as well. So there are various ways you can. And one of the key ones, folks, is just keep listening. Let me know if there's things that you would like me to cover or there are things that you would like to know a bit more about, or if you've got any general feedback. And again, if you've got any of that, you can just email me at theparanormalsun at gmail.com. That's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. But again, you can reach me through Instagram or Facebook as well. And with that, folks, we're going to get into the very interesting tale of New Zealand's most well-known UFO case, the Kaikoura Lights. There is some weird material among the searchable online Central Intelligence Agency trove of declassified archives. The CIA trove cites the Kaikoura incident, which was referred to in a publication called the Journal of Scientific Exploration in 1987. The New Zealand UFO sightings of December the 31st, 1978 are unique among civilian UFO reports because there is a large amount of documentary evidence, which includes the recollections of seven witnesses two tape recordings made during the sightings, the detection of some unusual ground and air, airplane radar targets, and a 16mm color movie. In 1978, strange lights were reported in the skies above Kaikoura on the east coast of South Island, New Zealand. The sighting, intense public interest, and media coverage of the UFO, as well as interest from the Prime Minister at the time, 
Robert Muldoon sparked an official inquiry by the Air Force. At the end of 1978, Australasia was in the grip of UFO fever. In October, 20-year-old Frederick Valentich disappeared while piloting a small Cessna 182 aircraft over the Bass Strait while heading to King Island in Tasmania. Described as a flying saucer enthusiast, Valentich informed Melbourne Air Traffic Control he was being accompanied by an unknown aircraft. Two months later across the Tasman, on December the 21st, Safe Air pilots Vern Powell and Ian Peary spotted strange lights while flying from Blenheim to Christchurch. There is, however, much more significance to this date than is often conveyed due to the recorded evidence of the later sighting on the 31st. Below is a detailed recounting of the events of December 21, 1978. Blenheim Air Base sits facing Cloudy Bay and the Cook Strait on the northern tip of the South Island, New Zealand. At 11 o'clock, Ian Uffendil of the, of the New Zealand RAF, or Royal Air Force, reported unusual lights in the sky. One large and two smaller lights, making controlled movements and flying closely together. He added that they were not aircraft. John Cordy at Wellington Air Traffic Control Center, or the WATCC, confirmed targets on his scopes in the area reported by Uffendel. This was the first radar visual event, or RVE, in these encounters. 1978, December 21st, Cape Campbell, South Island. New Zealand witnesses in the Cape Campbell area, which is about 45 miles north of Kaikoura, saw lights in the sky behaving in the manner of aircraft involved in a search and rescue operation, as if helicopters were using high-powered spotlights to view the terrain beneath them. WATCC detected three unidentified targets on their radar screens, one of which moved at high speeds for 60 nautical miles and was estimated at the size of a commercial airliner. It stopped abruptly and remained stationary for some time. At 1.20 a.m., Captain Vern Powell, flying in the area, reported to WATCC that he could see bright white lights from an unidentified craft. He likened them to the landing lights of aircraft and added that an object appeared on his radar at the same location. 3.30 a.m., Powell indicated to WATCC that he could now see a bright red light. They confirmed that a target was on their radar to the right of his aircraft at a distance of 23 nautical miles. It paced him for a further 12 nautical miles. He called ATC to say that it had changed to an extremely bright light, encircled with a red halo, and its luminescence was still visible when it passed behind clouds. WATCC had five strong, unidentified targets on their scopes in Powell's vicinity as he approached Christchurch. As he was coming in to land, he reported a high-speed target moving at approximately 15,000 kilometers an hour. That's over 9,300 miles an hour, folks. It disappeared from his radar, but he could still see a flashing white light. Later that night, a large white orb dramatically buzzed another plane. They could not identify it, but reported the encounter to the WATCC. A producer for Melbourne's Channel Zero, which is now Channel 10, Leonard Lee, heard the news and tracked down reporter Quentin Fogarty, who worked for the channel but was on holiday with his wife and children in Christchurch, New Zealand, staying at TV1 journalist Dennis Grant's home. Freelance Wellington cameraman David Crockett was also hired, along with his wife, Neri, who operated the audio tape recorder. The group were invited to jump aboard Safe Air's Blenheim-based Argosy plane, named Merchant Enterprise, late on December the 30th, which pilots Bill Startup, 
and Bob Gard were taking on a newspaper run between Wellington and Christchurch. Before we get further into the narrative of the flight folks, I would also like to detail the night's events as I did on the 21st. Most sources focus only on the flight and film crew, as you would expect. 1978, December 30th, Christchurch, South Island, New Zealand. 11 p.m., a weather balloon was released from Christchurch to detect and record atmospheric conditions. Wellington, North Island, New Zealand. Investigating the preceding encounters over the Cook Strait area, reporter Quentin Fogarty, cameraman David Crockett, and his wife, recordist Neri Crockett, boarded an Argosy freight plane with Captain Bill Startup and co-pilot Robert Gard. Startup had 23 years' experience and over 14,000 hours of flying time. Gard himself had 7,000 hours of flying time. The film crew were going to interview and do their best to document what had occurred on December 21st, while reenacting as best they could the encounter. Little did they know they would end up with far more than what they bargained for. 11.50 p.m. The Argosy crossed the Cook Strait. For those of you not familiar, this is the sea gap between our two main islands, and at its narrowest point, it is about 22 kilometers or 14 miles of open sea. Startup reported excellent weather conditions, clear with visibility over 30 nautical miles. In fact, they could see the lights of Christchurch, which were about 150 miles away. There's another target that just appeared on your left side at about one mile, Wellington Air Traffic Control. 1978, December 31st, Kaikoura Coastline, South Island, New Zealand. 12.05 a.m., the pilots first noticed lights near to the Kaikoura Coast. These lights projected a beam downwards and then disappeared. The number varied from none to one to many. The pilots noted that the strange lights were above the town of Kaikoura, but between the aircraft and the ground in the one o'clock position at a distance of 13 nautical miles. 12.12 a.m., WATCC radioed confirmation of these lights as targets on their radar scopes. Indeed, those targets had been appearing and disappearing for the past half hour. On duty that night were air traffic controller Jeffrey Causer and Brian Chalmers, a radar maintenance technician. At this point, another aircraft landed at Wellington, and from then onwards, the Argosy was the only plane in the sky south of Wellington Air Base. Not long afterwards, WATCC reported that they had another target in the aircraft's 3 o'clock position, but the crew could see nothing in that direction. The radar target disappeared soon after. 12.15 a.m. The camera crew came up to the cockpit to view the objects. 12.16 a.m. WATCC notified them of a target in their 12 o'clock position at a distance of 10 nautical miles. The crew confirmed they saw a light in that direction. Startup. It was white and not very brilliant, but it did not change color or flicker. To me, it looked like the taillight of an aircraft. I'm not sure how long we saw it for. Probably not very long. I did not get a chance to judge its height relative to the aircraft. The light disappeared and WATCC confirmed its disappearance on the next sweep of the radar, but they reported a new strong target at their 11 o'clock position at a distance of three nautical miles. The Argosy crew saw nothing. WATCC reported a target at 9 o'clock at 2 nautical miles. Again, the crew could see nothing. Just after this, they picked up a target at their 10 o'clock position at a distance of 12 nautical miles. The captain requested permission to turn around to investigate the anomalous targets. WATCC authorized him with the caution that there is another target that just appeared on your left side at about one mile, briefly and then disappeared again. 
Although the crew were still witnessing the lights near to Kaikoura, they could see nothing of the new targets reported by Wellington. Startup put the Argosy in a turn. WATCC reported, The target I mentioned a moment ago is still just about 5 o'clock to use, stationary. Once more, nothing was visible to the crew in that direction. Causer had been picked up, had been picking up appearances and disappearances of targets on the scopes, which correlated to the lights viewed by the crew close to Kaikoura. There is a strong target right in formation with you. Could be right or left. Your target has doubled in size. Wellington Air Traffic Control Center, the Kaikoura Coastline. 12.27 a.m. With the Argosy now moving back along its flight path towards Wellington Air Base, Causer reported another target in their 12 o'clock position, three miles distant. Startup responded, we pick it up, it's got a flashing light. He reported seeing a couple of very bright blue-white lights flashing regularly at a rapid rate. They looked like the strobe lights of a Boeing 737. Now again, note that the Argosy was the only aircraft in that area at the time. At 12.28 a.m., the Argosy turned back towards Christchurch and WATCC reported that all the targets were now 12 to 15 nautical miles behind them. 12.29 a.m., WATCC notified the pilots of a target one mile behind the aircraft in their 6 o'clock position, which soon vanished. So whatever this object was, if it was the ones that were 12 to 15 nautical miles behind, it closed that gap in a minute, less than a minute, folks. So that's some high speed. 12.30 a.m., Another target appeared on the radar at four miles behind the plane. It vanished. Next came a target at three o'clock, again at four nautical miles. 12.31 a.m. WATCC. There is a strong target right in formation with you. Could be right or left. Your target is doubled in size. This is known as a double-sized target. Growing increasingly worried, the co-pilot guard looked out the right windows and saw a light. It was like the fixed navigation lights on a small airplane when one passes you at night. It was much smaller than the really big ones we had seen over Kaikoura. At regular intervals, it appeared to flash, but it didn't flash on and off. It brightened or perhaps twinkled around the edges. When it did this, I could see a color, a slight tinge of green or perhaps red. It's very difficult describing a small light you see at night. Startup checked their environment, seeing coastal lights and the lights of Japanese squid boats on his far left, or east, towards the horizon. He saw no running lights of boats, which implies there were no boats in the area. When guard reported the light out of his right-hand window, startup turned off the green navigation light on the night wing to make viewing easier. The town lights of Kaikoura were now behind the mountains and not visible. Claims were made after this incident that the light witnessed by the crew was a beacon light on the end of the peninsula, but the witness testifying to the light being level with the plane, i.e. well above ground level. Fogarty commented, I'm looking over towards the right of the aircraft and we have an object confirmed by the Wellington radar. It's been following us for quite a while. It's about four miles away and looks like a very faint star, but then it emits a bright white and green light. Startup then told WATCC, got a target at three o'clock just behind us. WATCC responded, Roger, and going around to four o'clock at four miles. The Kaikoura Peninsula. 12.33 a.m. WATCC informed Christchurch Air Traffic Control, or the CATCC, that they had a target at 5 o'clock to the Argosy at a distance of 10 miles. CATCC could not confirm. 
WATCC said, not moving, not too much speed. It is moving in an easterly direction now. 12.35 a.m., WATCC. The target you mentioned, the last one we mentioned, make it 5 o'clock at 4 miles previously. Did you see anything? Startup. We saw that one. It came up at 4 o'clock, I think around 4 miles away. WATCC. Roger. That target is still stationary. It's now 6 o'clock to you at about 15 miles and has been joined by two other targets. 12.36 a.m. WATCC informed the Argosy that the three targets had now merged on their scopes. Startup requested permission to do another turn to investigate, and permission was granted. Despite this brief investigation, the crew saw nothing. 12.39 a.m. The Argosy continued on its way to Christchurch. CATCC reported to the plane that a target was pacing their aircraft to the west overland. Guard checked the window and saw a rapidly moving light in that direction. The Argosy went on to land at the airbase. It turned with us as I changed course. It was making definitive movements in relation to us. Captain Bill Startup. Christchurch, South Island, New Zealand. 2 a.m. to 3 a.m. Dennis Grant replaced Nary Crockett, who did not want to return to the area where these UFOs were flying. The Argosy took off again at 2.15 a.m. on its return journey. Not long after takeoff, the crew saw two more objects. David Crockett saw a spear with lateral lines around it, which were spinning. CATCC confirmed that the object was swaying continuously on their scopes for four minutes. The object moved in relation to the aircraft, suggesting intelligent control, and was estimated to be the size of a house. The crew saw two pulsating lights, one of which suddenly descended in a blurred streak for 1,000 feet or 300 meters before ascending in a series of jerky movements. Turbulence and atmospheric refraction could to some degree be attributed to the radar angles or the unknown targets towards the coastline. Strong reflectors of radar on the ground might appear to move around on the scope due to the strong refraction, but for this explanation to work off the coast would mean that there were numerous strong reflectors on the ocean spread out over a wide area due to the multitude of targets picked up during the Argosy's flights, which is unlikely given that no running lights could be seen by the cabin crew. Furthermore, any boats on the ocean should not have shown up on the radar scope because it has a filter which screens out any such targets. The sensitivity of the radar scopes at Wellington means that clear air turbulence, or CAT, meaning birds, insects, or weather, would not have been detected beyond 50 nautical miles. The Argosy was at 82 nautical miles from the WATCC at the time of the DST. Shortly after takeoff, the pilots noticed strange lights appearing and disappearing over the Koikoro coastline, about 20 miles to their west. While we were filming a stand-up to camera, Captain Bill's startup shouted to us that we should go to the flight deck immediately as something was happening again, says David Crockett. He managed to film a rapidly moving bright white light. With the conversation coming through my headphones from the pilot and radar from Wellington, it all started to get very scary, says Neri Crockett. I was able to stand up a couple of times and was able to see these bright lights coming and going. Quentin was a real mess and grabbed hold of both my hands and started shaking. I didn't have time to worry about myself. I had to help him. So, sorry folks. I know that's been a bit confusing, but these are a couple of the actual witness testimonies, aside from the captain and co-pilot. So, these were during the flight to Christchurch, not the return flight, which I've already started going into. So again, it uh, here's a little bit more about that landing in Christchurch. 
So it says the plane landed at Christchurch to unload newspapers, and the pilots asked the news team if they wanted to go back through the area they had just traversed. Neri was too frightened, so stayed in Christchurch. The others reboarded the plane with Dennis Grant in Neri's place. David had used up all the film in his 16mm camera, Grant says. Quinton called me sometime after midnight from Christchurch Airport to see if I could provide a fresh roll of film. I could, but there was a catch. I wanted to get on the plane for the flight to Blenheim. The plane took off at 2.16 a.m. About three minutes after takeoff, the group saw a bright, round light to their right. The airplane radar showed a target in the same direction, about 18 nautical miles. Fogarty would later be heard saying on camera, Let's hope they're friendly. Yeah, I would say. Crockett filmed the light for several minutes as it appeared to travel along with the plane. When they turned towards it, the light seemed to react by moving away from the airplane. The experience itself was extraordinary, Fogarty says. Just being on the cramped, noisy flight deck of the Argosy, barreling down the coast in the dead of night was exciting. Factor in a row of pulsating hypnotic lights hovering outside the window, and it goes to another level. After landing at Woodburn Airport at about 3 a.m., the group stayed at the two pilots' homes in Blenheim. Captain Startup's daughter, Tracy Moore, remembers her father coming home in the middle of the night. Everyone was at our house, talking about it in the middle of the night. They were talking about lights and unexplained radar readings. At one point, I remember Dad saying it might be a good idea to report it to the police. It was during the Cold War, after all. There was a bit of paranoia around. Mom said, you can't sit on this information. It was scary at the time. It was a big unknown thing that had just happened, and we had all the adults around discussing it. There were certainly no jokes being made. Fogarty interviewed the pilots before flying to Melbourne to give the recordings to Channel Zero. The footage featured on primetime news that night and a longer documentary piece screened later on. The news went around the world and was featured by major news media, including the New Zealand Herald and by CBS anchorman Walter Cronkite. The skeptical reaction was immediate. Explanations included that it was Venus, drug runners, light reflected from cabbages, or squid boats. The Robert Muldoon government ordered an inquiry by the Air Force, which concluded that the sightings could be explained by natural but unusual phenomenon. Leonard Lee traveled to the U.S. to give the film to Bruce McAbee, an optical physicist who specialized in laser technology and worked for the U.S. Navy in Maryland, Virginia. He was also flown to New Zealand and Melbourne to interview witnesses. He concluded the event involved unknown objects or phenomena fitting the definition of UFOs. One would think that the conclusion that several of the sightings involved unidentified objects flying with impunity in the New Zealand airspace would have been sufficient to start an even deeper study of the UFOs, Maccabee says. But it wasn't. The sightings were relegated to the dustbin of history, forgotten by all except the witnesses and a few ufologists who discussed the various sightings events for years afterward. He said the 39 years after the Kaikoura footage emerged in December of 2017, major media carried reports of UFO sightings by U.S. Navy personnel during training exercises. He says they involve multiple witnesses and multiple sources of information, such as battleship radar at sea level, radar in the Navy jet airplanes, visible and infrared video cameras in the airplanes, but the incident appears to have been forgotten. History appears to be repeating itself. Now that simply, uh, that did happen at the time, folks, but that has now blown wide open. That is the sightings that I've covered on this program before, all of the Pentagon stuff that's come out of the Nimitz and the other 
ship flotillas and all of that information that's come out. Journalist Quentin Fogarty. After his world scoop, Dunedin born. So for those of you who don't know, folks, Dunedin is a city in the South Island of New Zealand. So he's a New Zealand born reporter. Quentin Fogarty suffered from nervous exhaustion and ended up in hospital for a couple of weeks. The level of initial skepticism both surprised and at times overwhelmed me. I certainly did not expect to be accused of hoaxing the whole thing. That cut deep. It still does. The local daily tabloid in Melbourne branded me as the UFO reporter, and that stuck for a short time, but it did not take too long for me to be back in my role as a TV journalist reporting on more mundane matters. Fogarty, a father of four who still lives in Melbourne, says he endeavored to report the story as accurately and impartially as he could. We had film, our own eyewitness accounts, and confirmation from the flight crew and air traffic controllers that we had stumbled into something astonishing. Fogarty, who started his career at Dunedin's Evening Star, wrote a book about the experience in 1982. He called it Let's Hope They're Friendly, and he remains convinced that enhanced computer analysis of the film may get closer to finding answers. Forty years down the track, this is still unfinished business. Pilot Bill Startup. Startup now lives in a rest home in Blenheim. He had a stroke three years after the incident and had to retire from flying. He wrote a book the following year, The Kaikoura UFOs, his daughter says, to clear up the misinformation doing the rounds. That same year, Startup then took his wife Shirley and children to visit Bruce Maccabee in the U.S. Shirley, who passed away in 2012, was interviewed in 2008 and said a psychiatrist had thought the men had lost their faith in God and were seeing angels. Startup, who was not well enough to be interviewed by the Herald on Sunday, so this was an article, folks, following up uh, where are they now type of things on all the witnesses, told a documentary in 2009, what it was all those years ago, I wish I knew. People can think what they want, but they were not in the aircraft. Startup did not dwell on the experience, Moore says. Over the years, there has been periodic interest, so he was being visited every one to two years from reporters all over, but he didn't bring it up. She didn't get the impression he truly believed it was a UFO. He'd seen something that he did not know what it was, and his colleagues couldn't come up with an explanation either. He had no thoughts that he ever communicated to us. Co-pilot Bob Gard. Gard has never said too much about the strange lights. One of the issues for me is, we were just doing our job. We suddenly had to justify ourselves. We didn't know what the hell it was. We didn't expect to see anything. It was a bit tense as it got closer to the aircraft. I got over it. Have I ever seen anything like that again? No, I haven't. Do I believe in UFOs? No, I don't. Pilots see a lot of unidentified flying things. Would I tell anyone if I saw anything like that again? No, I wouldn't. It's not worth the hassle. Research followed the sightings, but he says, Some were a sham. They use newspaper articles for their research. Guard stopped working for AirSafe in 1990 and went on to write at sorry, to work at Air Nelson. He was the flight operations manager when he retired, age 65, in 2010. His children and grandchildren were aware of the story, but it is not something that has taken over their lives. So again, folks, Nelson is a small um, provincial town or city in New Zealand. So he retired, he, he stopped working for Safeguard and went and worked uh, a little bit you know, further out in the provinces in a smaller town. Sound recorder Neri Crockett. The Crockett's, who had five children, separated soon after the incident. Neri is now Neri Gilmore, 
after her new marriage to husband Ray Gilmore. The pair, who met during a blind date eight years ago, married in a surprise ceremony at the Julia Wallace Retirement Village in Palmerston North the day after Meghan and Harry's nuptials this year. Residents dressed up in royal wedding theme for a happy hour, but didn't know they were attending a real wedding. Had this film changed my life, says Gilmore? I guess it did. We had a phone call after phone call and people knocking on our door. David and the reporter became so obsessed that the doco was all they talked about. I switched off as we had five children, and it was affecting all of our lives. Cameraman David Crockett. David Crockett dealt with health and a handful of effects after filming The Strange Objects. To this day, the incident has never left my mind. I'm also reminded of the event by people who come up to me and say, I saw you the other night on the Discovery or the Science Channel. The effect his historic sighting has had on all of us has certainly included a fair amount of stress. As for me, I was sleepless for several nights, and after having performed several overseas lectures on the sighting, became quite depressed. Crockett, who now lives in Hawaii where he worked as a mango farmer, made a documentary about the incident and gave lectures, which took him around the world. He is hoping to make a new documentary to mark the 40-year anniversary. It substantially changed my life. At that time, in the history of the UFO phenomena, skeptics thought we were crazy and criticized us in many ways. In 1978, most persons would not seriously consider that these were real objects and may even originate from other planets. TV journalist Dennis Grant Over the years, Grant has amassed a massive collection of a newspaper and magazine stories. He scoured official records in Australia and New Zealand and lodged official information applications for long-forgotten files. The results are overwhelmingly helpful, or sorry, overwhelmingly unhelpful in explaining the lights and what they were doing in the lonely summer skies of New Zealand. Forty years on, I'm still very curious. My grandkids love to hear the story of my brush with UFOs. I just wish I could provide an ending. Grant was working at TV1, now TVNZ1, in Christchurch in 1978, and now lives in Australia. I was a young journalist back then, fired with the zeal of telling stories untold, and I helped tell this story. But the rest of the world, the scientists, the officials, the military, and saddest of all for me, the media, were all concerned, consumed with indifference, incurious. So does he believe in UFOs? I'm entirely skeptical of the notion of little green men, Martians and pro anal probes and all the rest of it. I note that the number of UFO sightings has greatly diminished since video and digital cameras and phone cameras have become readily available. However, what we saw that night over Kaikoura was unidentified, and it still is. The Argosy. The decommissioned Argosy now sits on land near the Marlborough Airport owned by the Blenheim filmmaker Paul Davidson. He purchased the aircraft in 1991 after hearing it was to be scrapped, telling the Safe Air general manager he would pay what he would have got from the scrap dealer. The aircraft had special meaning to him. In 2009, Davidson made a documentary featuring interviews with the pilots and crew from 1978. Davidson, whose home is on land adjacent to the aircraft, has restored and refurbished the aircraft and runs flight simulation experiences, complete with in-flight movies telling the story of safe air and meals. Passengers can dine at the Argosy Cafe next to the plane, which acts as a terminal where they can collect their boarding passes and go to the gate for their experience. There is also a memorabilia on display. We put it back together and tidied it up. It's unique to Marlborough. From Thursday, to coincide with the first strange sighting, Davidson will be running a UFO-themed experience. His documentary will be screened, 
Lights will be dimmed on board and a spooky atmosphere created. People can sit in actual seat Captain Startup sat in. It's the only place in the world where you can do that. So does Davidson believe in UFOs? I believe in the possibility of them. I got to know both pilots with my documentary. They got sick of people saying it was probably lights or cars or lights of squid boats. These were professional pilots. We know what Venus looks like. This was not Venus. Everyone on board has said the event had a traumatic effect on their lives. The New Zealand Defense Force stated that basically there was nothing to see here, folks. Almost all the sightings can be explained by natural but unusual phenomenon, says Wing Commander, said Wing Commander J.B. Clements. Defense should issue a PR statement fairly soon in order to tone down much of the wild speculation that has existed over recent weeks. New Zealand Defense Force files released later, more on that to follow, folks, later in the show, showed the RNZAF attributed the sightings to freak propagation of radio and light waves, an unusually bright Venus, anomalous returns on Wellington radar, and the lights of a squid fishing fleet, cars and trains. Okay, folks, so that was basically the official explanation, as I say, that came out after these flights in 1979, you know, is when the explanation came out. They basically said, uh, you know, it was could have been the planet Venus, it could have been the lights from boats, it could have been the lights from cars, uh, it could have been all these things. So they did the typical, we'll throw out 50 things at the wall and we'll see if any lump of mud sticks. So just keep all of that in mind, folks. It's basically the same old nothing to see here. Now, now we'll get into some other theories and explanations, and some points that I want you to remember are the following. The Royal New Zealand Air Force put a Skyhawk jet fighter on full alert to intercept any other UFOs which might appear after that flight. So if they thought it was the planet Venus or squid boats or something else, why would you have a jet fighter on standby. And again, folks, please remember, we're in New Zealand, not the U.S., where there are thousands of fighter craft sitting around. Even at that time, I believe New Zealand may have had five, five or six jet fighters actually in the whole country. Now we have zero. But at that time, there were these Skyhawk jet fighters. There weren't a whole lot of them. Now, examination of the film and computer enhancement concurs that the footage is genuine. Now, this has been done from many people, but you heard me talking about Bruce Maccabee earlier. Now, he's quite famous, and he's well-known in the UFO field. And the Kaikoura Lights footage, as I told you, was flown to America, and it was examined by Dr. Maccabee. Now, he's an American scientist and UFO researcher. He has an MS and PhD in physics. He's also an optical data processing expert. And he concluded that the footage had captured the images and movements of a genuine UFO, as I said. Dr. Maccabee states, some of the most technically interesting sightings are those in which radar plays a role. There are many radar-only sightings with no coincidental visual sightings. Of greater interest are the radar visual cases in which a witness or witnesses report an object in the same direction and undergoing the same dynamics as a radar target. These New Zealand sightings may be the most instrumented in civilian ufology with multiple witnesses two independent tape recordings made during the sightings, color movie footage, and ground and air radar recordings. Now, you heard me mention Brian Chalmers earlier. Now, he was the radar technician based in Wellington on the night of these sightings. Now, he was responsible for maintaining that radar. Now, he checked it for evidence of anomalous propagation or refractive beam bending 
not after, not before, but during the actual sightings. Now, those tests came back, and they proved that the atmospheric refraction could not account for the radar sightings. Now, something that you need to be aware of as well, folks, is although a dark object against a light sky can be seen from about 30 miles or more away, a light object against a dark sky or a dark background can be seen from more than 100 miles away. That's why you can see the lights of a city much further away than you could, like, say, during the daytime. Could you see, uh, you know, a cloud bank off in the distance? Turbulence and atmospheric refraction could, to some degree, be attributed to the radar angles, as I say. But again, as we discussed earlier, for this to work, for this to work at sea on the night, you would have to have several targets that could be picked up by the Argosy, okay? And they'd have to be spread over a wide area. Now, some people, again, have said, oh, these were fishing boats. And we do have quite a large commercial fishing fleet in New Zealand, both New Zealand boats and international boats, okay? But there's a problem with that. First and foremost, the plane didn't see any running lights out of the window. They only saw the, the Japanese boat far off in the distance, okay? That gives you an idea of the distance that you can see these things at night. Now, again, even if these vessels were only running with running lights on, you would see them from the plane because you can see it up to 100 miles or further away. And they definitely weren't flying at over 100 miles. I mean, you know, 30, what is it, 35,000 feet or so, something like that is, is only about six miles high. So they definitely would have seen it. And I'll tell you that there's no way multiple large ships are running around with no, no running lights because it's so dangerous off of our coastline, and we've had several instances of ships running aground as it is, you wouldn't be running along with no navigation lights. And again, if those, if those boats were what caused these sightings, okay, or these pickups on the radar, that doesn't work either. And the reason is, as I mentioned earlier, the CAT, or the Clear Air Turbulence Filter, set on the radar scopes in Wellington would not have picked up anything beyond 50 nautical miles. So it wouldn't have picked up anything, you know, as far as that wasn't in the air, wasn't something large in the air beyond 50 nautical miles. And the Argosy was 82 nautical miles at the time of those radar sightings and that. So again, it wasn't just on the border. It's not like we're talking about 52 nautical miles or something like that. Now, a government inquiry suggested that the lights were di directed from the sea. But this was contradicted by the f fact that the radar had picked it up. So again, if you know, they were basically saying that their lights shining up in the sky from the sea. And again, you know, they blamed it on squid boat lights reflected off of clouds. Now, for those of you who don't know what squid boat lights are, if you go out at sea and you shine bright lights on the ocean water, squid will come to the surface, and then it's easy to scoop them up and net them. So again, you know, people are saying, oh, it was these lights bouncing off of the ocean and then bouncing off of the clouds. But again, early on, as we talked about, you know, the captain startup on the plane said that it was clear skies. You know, there weren't all these low-hanging clouds or anything around. Uh, other people have suggested that there were unburnt meteors involved. Okay, so meteors that entered the atmosphere and didn't burn up. So again, how were these meteors moving around the plane in different directions? How were these meteors following the plane at a set altitude and not dropping? On top of that, you know, uh, you know that astronomers follow these sorts of things, folks. 
And if there was a major meteor shower or multiple meteors entering the atmosphere, you know, and not just the odd one here or there, something burning up junk from space, we would have heard about it because, again, these astronomers would have picked it up as well. You know, we're not living on the moon here in New Zealand. We actually, we actually have some really big observatories and, you know, so does Australia. These things would have been sighted, you know, no one's come forward saying, oh, well, there was a meteor shower on that night. Also, of course, you know, my old favorite standby, just like the Veronese case, you know, where uh, people claim that the planet Venus was involved, you know, even though it landed in a park and uh, three entities proceeded to get out, but yet was the planet Venus. Well, again, folks, they're saying it was the planet Venus. Now, again, both the captain and co-pilot stated unequivocally, it was not the planet Venus. We know what it looks like. It wasn't the planet Venus. Trains and cars, lights from trains and cars. Again, you know, that's an old standby. Now, my favorite, folks, um, not moonshiners, believe it or not, for once, but drug runners. So, you know, it was drug runners. Well, first off, if it was a drug runner plane, okay, why did it keep moving around this? You know, you would want to avoid a large airplane. Secondly, drug runners that fly things in planes tend to not fly through heavily uh, trafficked areas of the sky, all right? It just doesn't happen. On top of that, I'm not saying it's impossible in New Zealand, but in New Zealand, you would be much more likely to have drug runners running things by boat. Now, those would be the ones that would be running small boats with the lights off. So, uh, but again, you know, lights off, small boats, and not a fleet of boats on the ocean. So it was clear there were there were some object, at least, you know, there was something that was following them. It wasn't a figment of their imagination or a trick of the light because it wasn't just all the independent witnesses, but we have it, footage of it. We have film footage. And yet, despite these supposed somewhat mundane and harmless causes, the results of official investigations were stamped top secret and lodged in the National Archives in Wellington here in New Zealand, which is our capital. So if it was squid boat lights, and if it was the planet Venus, and if it was unburnt meteors, why is it top secret? Why was it stamped top secret, okay? Even during the Cold War, what would you have to hide from Soviet spies, all right? I'm sorry, but it just smells a bit BS to me. So anyway, folks, that gives you a good rundown of some of the other theories and the explanations that have you know, been brought forward. Now, the aftermath of this case. First, I'll give you the general conditions that most UFO witnesses have faced over the years in New Zealand and Australia. Now, New Zealand as a country is rather small and more tightly knit than many. In 1979, there were only 3.1 million people in New Zealand, and we've only just earlier this year of 2020 topped 5 million people. This is a country larger than the UK, by the way. The point is that people are often apprehensive to publicly admit to sightings of strange things, as you can imagine, and the media in both New Zealand and Australia have long taken the same derisive and judgmental attitude that the media in the U.S. and the U.K. have towards sightings. It doesn't take much to erode your, your credibility, even in the, in the city, and when your job and livelihood may be on the line, people generally take the pragmatic approach and say little to nothing about these things. As you heard the co-pilot say, if he would have seen something after this, he wouldn't tell us anyway. The Kaikoura light sightings 
with all important film footage and radar returns, divided public opinion. And evidence suggests that the Ministry of Defense colluded with the national government in power at the time. So again, the national government being a political party, and they were in in government at the time, and with certain astronomers and scientists from the Department of Scientific and Industrial Research to conceal the true nature of the events and turn public opinion towards natural explanations for the Kaikoura lights. Despite reports and testimony from pilots and the ATCs involved, ever more ridiculous explanations for the anomalous lights were fed to the public, ranging from Venus, as I said, which was quickly discounted, to the lights from squid boats reflected on clouds and city lights reflected off flocks of birds in flight. I kid you not. This attitude engendered public outcry, and subsequently the authorities lapsed into silence concerning UFO sightings and reports lodged to the Defense Force were invariably politely deflected for several decades. Now, in January of 2009, Suzanne Hansen, director of UFO CUS NZ Research Network, so UF, so you focus. NZ Research Network, and the late Graham Opie, at this time Senior Air Traffic Controller at Hamilton Airport, and UFOCUS NZ Sighting Investigator, initiated a FOIA submission directly to the NZ Chief of the Defense Force, who at the time was Lieutenant General Jerry Matapari, and continued to lobby for access to Royal New Zealand Air Force files concerning UFO sightings. So, if you were doing a FOIA request in the U.S., and you wrote a letter basically directly to the head general in the Pentagon, that is the equivalent. So not the not the the defense person, but the actual military head. In April of 2009, UFOCUS NZ received a written response from the CDF stating, other relevant files are held by this headquarters, but they contain classified and staff and confidential information. In terms of the Official Informations Act, it would require a substantial amount of coalition research and consultation to identify whether any of that information could be released to you. And in the longer term, recognizing the ongoing public interest in this topic, I should like to see a summary of information held about UFO sightings introduced in much the same way as that which has been produced by the UK's Ministry of Defense Given existing constraints, however, I cannot predict when this object could be achieved. So he's basically saying that he would love to release all of the UFO files that New Zealand may have, uh, but it's not as simple as that because you've got uh, staff confidentiality. You don't want to be releasing people's names and where they worked and everything else. And But that he would love to get it out of his hair, basically, and I can imagine why. Because it would be great to just dump the files and say, there, you go through it, as many other countries have done, and then not really answer any questions. So UFOCUS NZ continued lobbying and wrote to the Chief of Defense again in October of 2009, and in January and August of 2010. In a letter of response, dated the 2nd of December 2009, he stated, I'm pleased to be able to inform you that the two... NZDF officers have begun the task of assessing classified files held in relation to this topic with a view to declassification. I would expect that files which are transgressed or sorry transferred would be subject to extensive embargo periods in terms of access by the general public. I will write you again when this de declassification exercise has been completed. So good news, right? He said that we've got a couple of full-time staff looking at this to basically do a data dump. 
Now, following in the footsteps of fellow Commonwealth countries, the UK, Australia, and Canada, the NZ Ministry of Defense, in conjunction with the Defense Force, made the decision between September and December of 2010 to release 2,010 pages of UFO files to the National Archives. The first tranche of 12 volumes of previously classified files on New Zealand Air Force UFO sightings dating from 1952 to 2009 were released to the National Archives on the 22nd of December 2010 and two smaller tranches of three volumes each embargoed until 4 a.m. Thursday the 31st of March 2011. Printed copies of all the files were sent to U-focused NZ Research Network and to the Christchurch Press, which is a paper. Now, in theory, only more than 50 years of UFO secrecy in New Zealand were now over, right? Because they'd released these files. However, it's important to highlight several issues in relation to these files. Only the Air Force UFO files were released. Navy and Army files remain classified at this point. Embargoes remain on some Air Force files. Access to the original files will be restricted until the year 2050 at the earliest for privacy concerns. Now, I understand you wanting to protect people's privacy, but if these cases happened, you know, in from 52 on, how many of those people are going to be around in 2050? Okay? There may be some, but there's not going to be many. And again, go through and redact names. You know, it's simple. If you've got, let's say, Corporal Smith, cross out the Smith, redact the Smith. It's not that difficult. If they really wanted to release it, they, they would find a way. UFOCUS NZ's archives include a number of significant UFO events that they know were investigated by the Air Force, but reports were not included in the release files. So there are investigations that are known to have been checked out in New Zealand by the Air Force, but when these files were released and they said, well, these are all the cases, some of those have not turned up. So they know there are other files there. Probable defense intelligent files remain inaccessible as well. And also those in other defense department sections, like I said, the Navy and the Army. UFO-related content still exists in other government agencies' files, such as Civil Aviation, the Ministry of Transport, Department of Scientific and Industrial Research, Air Traffic Control, Police National Headquarters, New Zealand Meteorological Service, and the Carter Observatory. So what does this mean? They could be hiding these files anywhere, folks. It could simply be a shuffling match of saying, well, we'll move it from here to there. You know, we'll send it to the civil aviation. Oh, well, they're sending FOIA stuff to civil aviation. Oh, well, we'll send it over to, uh, you know, air traffic control. We'll send it here and there. I'm not saying for sure that's what's happening, but there's a possibility. Now, in relation to some of the dubious explanations proffered by government departments and professionals concerning the Kaikoralite sightings in particular, the Chief of Defense wrote to alert some of the agencies above that I've mentioned that some of those comments would be contained in the files. So he basically said he was going to release some of these comments that they had made, you know, and I'm sure that, as I said, they were comments about witnesses being drunk or seeing the planet Venus, etc. Now, he stated that while most correspondents were remarkably restrained in their comments, given a degree of skepticism about the subject, he warned that some material could still give rise to manner, minor embarrassment. Now, again, so UFO Focus is aware from subsequent research that there's a huge amount of unreleased and embargoed Ministry of Defense and other departmental files on UFO sightings in New Zealand. The 15 files released 
largely contain departmental memos, the writings of an individual, and previously widely publicized reports. Many pages were redacted and therefore unreadable. In line with right to privacy issues, the NZ Ministry of Defense UFO file declassification was not and never could be a full act of disclosure. Again, I can't say I'm surprised. The NZ Ministry of Defense also chose the 22nd of December, just three days before Christmas, to release the initial 12 volumes of the files. A token public statement beforehand from the Air Force Squadron leader, Kaveh Tamariki, was of the effect that the Defense Force would not comment on the on the content of the files. So, we've had talks about this before, folks. They released it just before Christmas, which is obviously the major holiday period for a Christian country. And especially in New Zealand, it's also the summer, so people take time off. And, you know, they basically knew it would be out of the news. And then they also said, well, even if you want to know more about the files, we're not going to answer any questions. So again, so this squadron leader commented, we've just been a collective point for the information. We don't investigate or make reports. We haven't substantiated anything in them. The Defense Force did not have the resources to investigate UFO sightings, Tamariki said. However, the claim that the Defense Force did not investigate sightings was blatantly incorrect, as witnesses to major sightings have confirmed. And there have been many cases, folks, and I'm going to give you a few, where people have had individuals from the Air Force turn up, and yet he's saying, oh, we don't investigate these things. The Ministry of Defense has always claimed it is not specifically charged with any formal responsibility for investigating UFO reports, but that it does take an active interest in them and conducts investigations with resource limitations as necessary. However, the release files clearly reveal there was a loosely official investigative committee formed in the early 70s with scientific, technical, and aviation expertise, but which saw the UFO problem as scientific rather than defense-related. It was disbanded in November of 1976. If the MOD's decision to release the files just before Christmas was part of a strategy of avoidance of any obligation to answer questions, it worked very well. The general public was occupied with Christmas festivities and summer holidays, and the MOD was unavailable to answer questions for several weeks over the Christmas public holiday period. Closed down, gone to the beach. Sorry, folks, nothing to see here. However, the release of the UFO files generated huge media interest, both nationally and internationally, creating mayhem when they discovered the only group available to respond to their questions was NZ who had not yet even received their printed copies of the files, and therefore could only speculate on what the content said. The media contributed with snippets released online by the Christchurch Press, focusing mainly on the bizarre and outlandish con- contents, along with some highly high credibility but already known cases. So basically, as the media is wont to do, they went through these UFO cases, they found some of the more bizarre or you know, real sensational ones, and they were publishing those. They weren't really getting into the more based-in-fact type cases. And also, as he says, some of these cases that were already well-known. So they're not really adding anything. By the time the contents of the files became known, public interest had waned. By the new year, and the media had moved on to reporting on summer activities. 
As a result, the MOD, Defense Force, neatly avoided explaining why, for example, the files contained scores of memos noting military, commercial, and private pilot UFO sighting reports, and yet the files contained no Air Force, no Air Force reports related to most of these sightings, apart from the well-documented cases followed by the media at the time. Remember, the MOD claimed to have taken an active interest in all UFO reports and to have conducted investigations within the limitations of its resources. However, the Defense Force claimed it did not have the resources to investigate UFO sightings, but one might expect the Air Force would at least investigate and write reports on the aviation sightings, as opposed to public sightings. Why were they deemed unworthy of investigation? Or were they? So again, you've had sightings by people flying, or military entities, and you're not investigating it, but at the same time you're saying, oh, we do take an interest and we do investigate these. So again, it just doesn't add up, right? Now, in addition, UFOCUSNZ holds historic UFO reports in their archive that witnesses state were investigated by the Air Force, but no such reports are included in these MOD files, indicating that they may still be rated as classified. One such example is a UFO event that occurred in remote rural Mattawai in 1969. A farmer mustering sheep was surprised when his dog suddenly bolted and he heard a sound like steam brakes being applied. A hundred feet above him, he saw a rotating flying saucer and he dove to the ground, losing consciousness for an hour. When he was woken by a dog licking his face, the fence line had been demolished with three strands of wire melted and hanging in globules over several yards, and splintered fence battens were spread around on charred ground. The incident was investigated by a chief police inspector, a constable, an Air Force officer, the latter stating he had just come from the Taupo area where, quote, a lot of flying saucer sightings, unquote, had been reported. The witness stated the Air Force officer took samples and warned that the Air Force would deny all knowledge of their involvement. The media was not involved. Have you spotted a strange light or object in the sky? A non-human entity or craft of unknown origin? With the release of the files, the chief of the Defense Force stated in a staff guide from October 2009, the NZDF does not have any expertise or role in respect of flying saucer matters, nor is it qualified to address questions of the existence of otherwise of extraterrestrial life forms. The NZDF believes that rational explanations such as aircraft flights or natural phenomena could be found for UFOs, UAPs, if, if resources were diverted for the purpose, but it would be an inappropriate use of defense resources. So they basically said, well, we're not going to look into this, but even if we did, oh, there's, there's explanations. You know, it'll be, it'll be uh, airplanes, it'll be the planet Venus, you know, nothing to see, no UFOs, folks. Now, it is interesting that just prior to the release of the files, the NZ Defense Force changed their terminology from UFO to UAS, or Unusual Aerial Sighting, and UAP, which we've all heard the infamous UAPs, thus broadening and diluting the focus away from UFOs, as in unidentified aerial flying objects, to include such natural phenomena as, for example, unusual clouds, contrails, weather bombs, etc., Upon releasing the files, the NZ Defense Force made the extraordinary statement that they believe that all UAS UAP reports could be explained by misidentified aircraft or natural phenomena. They advised that anyone observing an unusual aerial phenomena should report it to the police force, who were neither interested, resourced, or trained to deal with it, folks. 
the Civil Aviation Authority, or in a somewhat Freudian slip, to a civilian UFO research and investigation group, which is UFOCUS. So what are we left with here, folks? Squid boat lights? Improbable to say the least, as I've said. A meteor that followed the plane changed the intensity of the light it emitted while not falling? Don't laugh too hard. Some people have proclaimed it as case closed by this theory. Could it have been some sort of atmospheric phenomenon? Yes, anything is possible, but even if this was the case, why over 40 years later have they not been sighted ever again? You know, like any modernized Western country, air traffic and population has increased significantly in the last four decades or so here, so you would think even if this was uncommon, you would have had several more sightings. Maybe there have been, and the witnesses are not keen to be ridiculed and told it was only Venus. So with that, folks, I hope that you have enjoyed the Kaikoura Lights episode. I'll be covering more stuff from New Zealand for you. And just as an aside, I've found out that the U-196 story that I was reading to you before, I had a look, and there are five parts in total on the web. So there are three more parts to read. So I'll cover it over as we go. And it does get more interesting. So I hope that you've enjoyed the show. I hope that you have a great week. And until next time, folks. So folks, with that, I will leave you with the Art Bell quote of, A mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter does reside within may not be reached. Talk to you soon, folks.